beware of overconfidence. People don't expect you to have a crystal ball and know what the future holds. I think everybody should start out by saying something to the effect of my opinion in two bucks will get you a hot cup of coffee. People want to know what's going on. Our job is to explain to people what's happening. It's not to predict the future. The value that we add is we do what we did on this talk today. We clarify what's happening in the markets and we give people answers about what we know. You can offer a view about the future, but you don't want to sound overconfident. To me, you're putting yourself at risk when you do that. And ultimately, I think people can see through that. They know you can't predict the future. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today on the show of Dave LaRock. Dave did a live episode with me on I Love Mortgage Brokering, and I love having Dave back on at least once a quarter to find out what the heck's going on with interest rates, predictions. He's a very smart dude. And we talk about bank failures, how that affected interest rates. We talk about the bond market as well as selecting the best rate for the current market, what his suggestions are. And we can get a little bit to the scripting of what he says to his clients. I think you're gonna find this really valuable. Also in my Ask the Expert segment, I talked to Tom Hall from Blue Mortgage about how to destroy distractions. Before I jump into that, let me give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform designed specifically for Canadian borrowers. It's very easy to use as they're filling out the app. It automatically knows what they need for documents. When that application comes in, you can go search lender spotlight, figure out what rates and guidelines they fit. And then when you go to hit submit, it's got smart submission notes. So it's pulling key data from the file to make it easier for your underwriters. Fantastic tool. Check them out at lendescom slash Finmo and check out this conversation with Dave. So, hey, welcome everybody to Island Be Live. I've got David Rock with me, one of the smartest dudes when it comes to mortgages, interest rates, how it all works in Canada. And there's been lots going on in the last little bit. And normally we get Dave about one to a quarter, but I think we shortened it because I'm like, dang, I need to understand what's happening. I've seen bank failures, rates kind of dip down. And so there's lots of confusion. And as a mortgage broker, when there's confusion, this is when you can add value by having answers to things and being able to communicate effectively and you'll build a ton of trust. Don't hide away. Don't cower in the corner. That's a bad idea. So I love that Dave can simplify things so that I can understand it. So this is good. Then most of you should be fine then. So Dave, um, welcome back, man. Thanks for having me. So first thing I'm thinking of is the bank failure. So tell me about the bank failures and what ripple effect that's caused because nobody really saw this coming. Well, I certainly didn't, but maybe you did and how it's affected interest rates and even expectations. Sure. Well, I'll try to give you the short version. Um, long story short, this is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Silicon Valley Bank bought a lot of U.S. treasuries. When the U.S. treasury yields went way up, they couldn't redeem the treasuries at par value. They had to redeem them at a discount because the treasuries they bought were paying like one and a half percent. And when treasuries go to five percent, the price of the treasuries goes down, i.e. the value. And a whole bunch of tech companies in Silicon Valley wanted to pull their money out. A lot of investors, a lot of tech companies. And when they went to the bank to get their money, the bank had to redeem these treasuries at a loss and effectively went broke. They couldn't redeem the treasuries. They argued, well, these were supposed to be safe. Well, the problem is the stress testing of the US banks didn't account for what happens if the banks buy a whole bunch of safe treasuries at one and a half and then treasuries go to 5%. And then they're, they're forced to redeem them because they were basically taking the deposit. So just so I understand, they take the depositor's money so that you come as a customer, 
They got it sitting there in the bank. Well, I got to make something on this. So they go, oh, what's safe? U.S. Treasuries. However, if the timing's bad and you need the money back, now they're going to lose money basically getting their funds back. And the losses were so big that they were like, we got wiped out. Is that what basically happened? We're insolvent. Exactly. Because if you've got a million bucks and you want to buy U.S. Treasuries, you can buy 10 million U.S. Treasuries. You don't buy a million U.S. Treasuries because they're so safe, you can use leverage. So if you're a bank and you get a million dollars worth of deposits, and like you say, you don't want to just oh, so that's even worse. So like they had like compounded losses. If they had you know fifty million dollars, they could actually bought more than fifty million dollars of treasury, which just means their losses were massive. They got hammered, and the U.S. one of the big flaws. There's always a lot of people you know who screwed up when something like this goes bad. And one of the big learnings of this was, hey, when we stress test banks, we need to stress test for what happens if they've loaded up on these quote unquote safe treasuries. And interest rates go through the roof, but it hadn't happened in decades. And when stuff hasn't happened in a long time, people forget that it can happen. And then the market's right. hit. Right. Uh, and then everybody wants their money. And then it just created the collapse. They're basically run on the bank. Right? A run on that bank. But also the fear was how many other regional banks are in the same boat? Because a lot of the other ones did the same thing. There's an expression that there's never just one cockroach. So if one bank goes bust, then all these other banks, small regional banks, start to tremor. And there was a New York bank, First Republic, then Credit Suisse in Europe, which has always been a real shaky bank that had all kinds of issues. They cracked and had to get bought at a fire sale price. And as this stuff was happening, the market started to panic. And when the market is healthy and chugging along, investors are worried about the return they get on their capital. But when the poop really hits the fan, They don't care, and I wrote this in a recent post, they don't care about the return on their capital so much as they do about the return of their capital. Right, right. Then they start piling into safe haven assets like Government of Canada bonds and U.S. Treasuries. Ironically, this crisis was caused because a bank owned too many U.S. Treasuries, and the solution the market came up with was to pile into U.S. Treasuries because at least the U.S. Treasury isn't going to go broke, and you'll be able to get your money back. So that drove down bond yields. So we had this really weird situation, Scott. Silicon Bank. Okay, that part I don't quite get. So everything else is making sense. So like, again, I would say, tell me like I'm 10. The part I don't get is, so you're saying, if I'm a bank, let's say, let's make the math simple. I got a million dollars. And what do you think, if I want to buy treasuries, how much treasuries could I buy typically with a bank? Or, you know, if I had a million dollars in my depositors cash, just so we can get some, like, break this down. I don't know the exact amount, Scott, but let's assume it's 10 to 1. Because right. So basically, I have a million dollars in my bank account from my depositors that I'm paying out a very small interest on a checking account. I then take that million, I go and get 10 million in loans. And as long as the cost of the loan, I would assume that the cost of those loans must have gone up too as the cost of funds went up. So that must have been also losing money on the way up, right? Like, so these loans aren't free. Like, so when I borrow well, the, the $10 million, are- yeah, those are like line of credits, aren't they? Or how do they work? The money the bank gets are deposits. So you open a checking account and you put a thousand bucks in the checking account. And so do 10,000. But, but do they actually need to, do they borrow that money from anybody or they can just go and buy, like does the tre- US Treasury go, oh, you got a million bucks, here's $10 million of treasuries. Like how does that work? Okay, so the bank gets the money deposited in a bunch of checking accounts. And now they're sitting on, let's say they're sitting on a million bucks in a whole bunch of accounts with $10,000 each sitting there. Yeah. And the bank says, we've got to pay a paltry rate of interest on the money sitting in these checking accounts. Well, we need to that. put it to work or we'll lose money. They have to find some use for it. Right. And banks are in the spread game. So basically, yeah. 
we have to figure out a way to deploy this capital and earn more on it wherever we deploy it, then we're paying out in these credit and be safe. account rates. Yeah. So they say, okay, so what can we do? We don't want to really lend money out to individuals because we think it's risky or we can't find enough individuals to lend the money to to deploy it all. So what are we going to do with this excess cash? I know we'll buy U.S. treasuries because if we buy U.S. treasuries, then we're allowed to effectively make a down payment and leverage up. In other words, we can buy- Is it called factoring? Is that, what that, is, that, is that factoring or is that a different term? Sorry? Factoring, you know how bank is, because they called factoring when you can buy more than what you actually have yeah. in, yeah. Right, okay. and again, we can spend a whole call on this, but let's just accept that for now, they can leverage up. That basically, okay. just like when you buy a house, you put 10% down, you can borrow 90% because the collateral is right. so strong that the lender will take the risk in lending you 90% of the value of the house. They are effectively able to buy US treasuries at let's assume 10 to one, and as long as they hold those U.S. Treasuries on their balance sheet until the end of the how long are the terms of those typically? It depends. There's all kinds of different terms. Okay, so they could have been buying all different. They probably stagger them intentionally, thinking when are we going to need cash back, short, long, and maximize yields. Right. I'm sure there's a whole formula to it. But there's then when everybody wants their money back and all of those yields, so if it was paying one percent and the market is at five percent, you got to sell it for a discount in order for somebody to even buy it, which means you just lost the difference between. Is that how that works? Right. Well, let's imagine that, Scott, you have two choices today. You've got a thousand bucks and you can buy a bond for a thousand bucks that pays you 5%, or you can buy a bond that pays you 1%. If you're going to buy that bond that pays you 1%, you're not going to pay a thousand bucks because I want to discount buy a bond that pays you 5% for a thousand bucks. So you're going to take out your financial calculator and you're going to say, for me to be indifferent, to buying the 5% bond or the 1% bond, I need the 1% bond to cost me 800 bucks, not a thousand bucks. And depending on how long the bond is for, what the term of the bond is, you plug in all the numbers into your financial calculator. And at the end, it tells you, if you pay X price for this 1% bond, your return at the end of the term will be the same as if you bought a as bond the 5%, yes. 5%. But if you have to sell that bond to get your money back and the bond pays 1%, you have to sell it for less than its par value. In other words, you might have bought that bond for a thousand bucks paying you 1%, but now that rates are 5% and you want to sell that bond back to get the money to give it to the people who want to pull money out of their checking accounts, you can only get 800 bucks instead of a thousand. So you take a loss. Now, right. in a normal banking environment, they know based on their modeling, what percentage of customers typically withdraw capital. And there's rules about how much ready cash they have to keep on hand. So when people show up at the bank to withdraw money, there's always money to be- They withdrawn. actually have it. Yeah, they actually have some of the money, right. But when there's a bank run, word gets out, the bank's running out of money, you better get down there today and pull your money out. And then suddenly when everybody wants their money at the same time, that's when the bank doesn't have enough cash on hand and has to start selling assets. And when it does that, it sells them at a loss. And eventually it takes on such a loss that it becomes insolvent. And that's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Okay, so that's, that's clear. Bank, okay. That, that makes perfect sense to me. So then how did that affect the interest rate market? So what, oh no, there was one thing in there that you embedded that you said, because all of these banks were looking for somewhere safe to put money, they were all buying these treasury bonds. So how was that affecting interest rate? Was that keeping rates low? Was the fact that all these banks were sitting on cash? So what was the effect of, 
you know, that behavior prior to this whole thing collapsing? Was that keeping rates down or what was that? Absolutely. I mean, again, we can get pretty complicated, but quantitative easing had a role to play. The central bank was allowing banks access to capital that was capital that the banks could use and they used that to buy treasuries. It gets pretty complicated, but long and short, Scott, when these banks were buying up all those treasuries, absolutely, that was excess demand and it was driving the yields down. So it was actually making the interest rates be prolonged lower, longer because of the extra money supply that was going there, correct? As our policymakers intended at the time, because they thought right. we need low rates and this will drive demand in the right. economy. But then, as Warren Buffett said famously, when the tide goes out, we'll find out who's been swimming without their swim trunks on. And when rates go to 5%, and everybody got very used to borrowing at 1%, there are all kinds of cracks that show up in the economy. Basically, things start to break. And we don't know exactly what will start to break. But for example, if you're running a company like Uber, and you're trying to expand market share and become the dominant cab share provider, the car ride share provider, and you can borrow money at 1%, you might say, you know what, we're going to lose money this year because we value, we think the market share we can gain by pricing all of our Uber rides at a loss, if we think that that's more valuable in the long run because we're going to kill off our competition and become the dominant market player, then we're going to lose money this year. And we can do it because number one, we can borrow very cheaply. And number two, right. anybody who wants to buy our stock is going to live with the fact that we're going to lose money because they can only get 1% if they buy treasuries. So basically they have to reach and take on more risk than they otherwise would and tolerate the fact that we're going to operate at a loss because there's not much better out there. Well, right. then rates go to 5%. Now all those investors say, well, wait a second here. I don't want to own this company that's operating at a loss. I can buy bonds that are super safe and get a 5% return. So company, make me some money or I'm out. So right. So then that causes the stock market to go down because money moves from stocks or into funds because it's like, hey, I can get it safer. Right. right. So all those speculative investments that were really attractive to investors are much less attractive when the safe investments cost 5%. So lo and behold, a whole bunch of stocks now can't get the money they want or they have to raise their pricing. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but you pay about the same for an Uber now as you do for a taxi cab. And a lot of those home delivery services, the great deals that people were getting before aren't, so, aren't great deals anymore because those companies can no longer operate at a loss because market now can get a decent return and much safer stuff. So those guys have to change the way they do business and not all of them can. Some of them operated on a premise that we're going to lose money for X amount of time until we get really big and then we can raise our prices. But then rates went up, risk appetite changed, and they didn't get as big as they needed to get or their business model doesn't work anymore. So when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming without their trunks on, a lot of these companies aren't viable anymore. Okay, yeah, that, that, that makes perfect risk, sense. Yeah. yeah, a lot of that risk is being re-rated in the market and things are breaking. And quite frankly, our central bankers knew when they did what they did that this was going to happen. And part of the reason that they raised rates was because when you keep rates super low for a really long time, you create this potential instability. It's kind of like when you have a forest there should be natural forest fires every once in a while. That kind of clean out all the stuff that's old and dead. Clean out the dead yeah. wood. Yeah. When you go around putting out all the forest fires that nature starts, eventually you're not burning a off. A monster. Dead, right? You're going to get a monster forest fire that you couldn't even control if you tried because there's too right. much dead wood, right? You get, that makes sense. You get, a, you get a fire 100 times bigger that you can't control. And it's the same with financial markets. If you don't have these periods of correction, recessions, stock market corrections, 
bank runs, when banks weaken, these are all reminders to the market that bad things can happen. It creates a balance between fear and greed. There's too much greed in the market when rates are at 1%. And all of this, believe it or not, is a pretty normal reaction and probably in the long run, a healthy thing that needed to happen. But there are people being affected. There are lives that right, yeah, yeah. in negative ways. And I don't want to seem insensitive to that. But the reality is, from a macro standpoint, it's not healthy to have rates as low for as long as we had them. And the market is correcting now. And Silicon Valley Bank, what it did is it actually benefited the Canadian mortgage business in the short term, because when everybody panicked at what was happening in the market and they said, we got to get somewhere safe, they bought up government and Canada bond yields and that drove the yields down. And because our fixed- That's what I was going to ask. How is this effect? How is a bank in Silicon Valley that primarily has startup money in it, how does that affect my interest rates here in Canada? So you're saying that- money flooded from US wherever into Canadian bonds and that drove down the yield? Is that what happened? Or these things are always multifaceted. So what are the things that actually cause these rates to sort of all of a sudden go, hold on, we may not just be, you know, a steady rate hike cycle, we may see some, you know, cracks in that. So what are the things? So that would be one, the money flowing into bonds. Is there anything else that would affect it? Well, that was the first thing that we saw, because up until that moment, the Bank of Canada and the Fed had been very bullish in their forecast. They said that they thought inflation was going to be stickier than expected. They basically sounded like they were either going to hold rates the same in Canada and raise them in the U.S., or like they might have to raise them in both places, because we were getting strong job reports. Inflation was still too high. Strong GDP data, strong consumer spending data. Everything was coming in higher and stronger than expected. Then the panic happened. And in the US, US treasuries went down. Basically, as soon as people start buying up US treasuries, the yields go down because people right. are saying, I will live with a lower return than the guy beside me because I want to buy more. And the guy beside you buys more, and then the yields drop. Right, right. Government of Canada bond yields piggyback on US treasuries. We trade about 85%. Everything we buy import comes from US markets. We are the US's biggest trading partner as well, and we're one-tenth their size. So when US treasuries move, they take government account of bond yields with them. So it wasn't a direct impact, but because government account of bond yields right. piggyback back on US treasuries, when US treasuries went down because of the panic around Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank and this fear coming out of Europe, bond yields around the world, sovereign bond yields went down everywhere. But in Canada, we piggybacked on the US yields, and that's what drove our fixed mortgage rates lower. Now, the interesting thing... Is, yeah, is this temporary, long-term? What's the cycle effect of this or how long? Too soon to tell. We don't know how many other banks have been affected. We don't know what kind of aftershocks we're going to see. So far, bond yields have recovered about 40% of the drop that happened directly in response to the Silicon Valley collapse. If those yields keep going back up, then it'll be a temporary thing. But Lenders are more conservative now. It's harder to borrow. All of these things have a slowing impact on the economy over time. And so we just don't know yet. But what we do know is right now, they've driven down our government account bond yields and they've driven down fixed mortgage rates. Interestingly, Scott, the BOC, when it hiked rates, wanted to slow the economy to bring inflation down. And so far, the only part of the economy that they were able to slow was real estate. Inflation still too high. Employment's stronger than they thought. GDP just came in way stronger than they thought and way stronger than they forecast. The only part of the economy that was slowing as a result of their rate hikes was real estate. Well, when government bond yields plummet and fixed mortgage rates drop, that's stimulus for the Canadian housing market. And we've seen crazy that. We've seen, yeah. Canadian housing market in our regional housing markets. 
Right. And that's stimulating the market. And now we're seeing a bump. So if you're the Bank of Canada and you're saying we raised rates hoping to slow the economy, the only part of the economy we're really slowing is real estate. And now because of a U.S. banking crisis, fixed mortgage rates have dropped and that's stimulating growth in our regional housing markets. That's bad news from a bringing inflation down and slowing the economy. Interestingly, and I wrote this in my recent uh, most recent blog post, variable rate mortgage borrowers are going to suffer because of this, because if the economy is stronger than expected and inflation I'm is- I'm in a variable rate mortgage. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Fixed mortgage rates borrowers are winning because bond yields are going down, but that's creating stimulus for the housing market, which means that the BOC is going to have to keep its policy rate either the same for longer or keep raising it. And that means variable rate borrowers may be going up win, more. The win for fixed rate borrowers is coming directly at the expense of variable rate borrowers. Okay, so what is inflation at right now? The last numbers you've been looking at, what's the trend? Because number by itself means nothing. But so what have you seen over the last three months or six months? Are we slowing down? I'm curious. We're slowing down. We're at 5.2 right now. Our headline CPI is at 5.2. Where was it when it was at the peak and how long ago? We were a little above 8%, and that would have been um, late summer, I think, July. Okay. Uh, sorry. So it slowed down a little, but it's still not like where they want it to be, right? Yeah. And the other thing, Scott, is the biggest reason that it's dropping, the Consumer Price Index uses a 12-month rolling total. So each month when the CPI is calculated, you add the latest month, and you also drop the month from 12 months ago that is now 13 months old. It falls off the back end. Right now, inflation is dropping primarily because the prices that are falling off the back end were crazy high, and the prices that are coming on the front end are still too high. They're still above the 2% target. So we're replacing last year's white-hot inflation with this year's red-hot inflation. So the number is dropping, but only because the prices falling off the back end of the CPI calculation are higher than the prices that are coming in today, which are still too high. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So then the variable rate mortgage holders, we're not going to get necessarily the benefit of this, these bank, you know, we still see rates going up. So if you're getting a mortgage today, what's the smart move? Like I've been seeing a lot more shorter terms, two, three-year terms. Is that still a good idea? What are your sort of thoughts? I know that it can vary for every customer, but in general, you got a well-qualified borrower who has lots of room in their GDS, TDS, and they're not going to stress out. But so how would you advise a client like that? You're like, hey, you've got room, you can make your payments, but you also want to reduce your interest cost. How would you stick handle that? Well, I think the safe middle of the road pick right now is the three-year fixed rate. That's what I say right. in my blog. And I'm doing mostly three-year fixed rates with the borrowers that I'm working with. And long story short, the way I look at it is variable rates are high and you start out with a premium. So you pay more in the beginning on the hope that in the end, over the next several years, you'll save it back. And there's no guarantee that will happen. What we do know is inflation has been stickier than expected. And we know that the banking Kevin and the Fed are telling anyone who will listen that they think that it's going to take longer than the market expects for prices to cool. And all of the surprises have been to the upside. We've had stronger jobs, we've had stronger spending, and we've had stronger economic growth. So if you're saying, what are the indicators telling us? That it's probably going to take longer than we think. If you take a one or a two-year fixed rate, you pay a premium just like with a variable on the bet that a year or two from now, when you come up for renewal, rates will have dropped and inflation will have cooled. I don't think that's a crazy bet. It could well happen. But I think it's a risky bet. And I think if you're looking for a safe bet, three years to me feels like enough time for inflation to be behind us. 
And five years feels too long. I don't think it'll take five years to bring inflation back down. And I think ultimately, eventually, the BOC's rate hikes and the Fed's rate hikes will do their job and the economy will slow. And the bond market thinks when everything settles down, we'll get rates in the low 3% range. So the timing of when that will happen is anybody's guess. And there's a lot of variables. So I can come up with a really smart answer today. And then, you know, Russia invades another country or the or Saudis- a, a, a slew of more banks go under and then, you know, mm-hmm. so like whatever. So I know that, but as of today, what you know, or what you'd be like, a three-year fix makes a lot of sense given the current situation. Like for some I think it's I think it's the safe middle of the road pick. And, and the way I position it with people is I say, look, you want to hit a home run? If you go variable today, you'll either pay the most out of all the options or the least. Like both of those possibilities is on the table. If you want to stay out of the ditch and you're not so concerned with gambling on or betting on the, getting the lowest cost of borrowing, right now people want to know what's safe. These are volatile times. People are nervous. They want to know what pick is safe. And I think three-year fixed, I tell them, you go with the three-year fixed, another term or option will end up being cheaper. You're not going to get the lowest cost of funds. But the odds that you pay the most out of everybody, those who took a five-year fix, those who took a variable, those who took a one-year, two-year fix, I think a three-year fixed rate today is the safest bet that you'll end up somewhere in the middle in terms of your borrowing cost over the next three years. And again, these are really volatile times. Nobody knows. But, you know, a lot of people today aren't looking to. So, OK, let me ask you a more technical question since our audience is all mortgage brokers. And it's I mean, we do we may have some consumers, but honestly, I love mortgage brokering. Probably not a lot of consumers that are listening to this. So are there certain lenders that you prefer for a three year fixed? Like, so how would you decide? OK, so if the three year fixed is a preferred product currently. So what do you look for in a lender or what kind of lenders are you find that you enjoy? And I know it could be partially. I don't want to paint you in a corner because I know you have probably several lender partners. And I want you to be like, this is my favorite. but. Like, which lenders are you looking at right now for that three-year fix that you'd be like, those are the kind of lenders I work with? Would you be comfortable sharing that? Sure. Well, anytime you're looking at a fixed rate, to me, the next question after the rate is, what are the terms and conditions? And is the lender going to use a posted rate to calculate your penalty if rates fall in a year and it ends up that you want to break early and take advantage right. of it? Right. Like, what's something else happens? Like, oh my gosh, rates did it, the cycle changed sooner than expected. So- Right. Right. So to me, five-year fixed, no-brainer, stay away from the banks. Three-year fixed, it really comes down to competitive pricing. And in terms of the three-year fixed rates I'm seeing out there right now, First National is usually pretty competitive. Their uninsured three-year fixed rate is 529 right now, which is pretty decent on uninsured. Some of the credit unions can be aggressive. And Ontario Alterna has a really aggressively priced three-year fixed rate. Their penalties are as bad as the banks, though. TD is pretty aggressive on their three-year fixed rate pricing right now. RMG, Marathon, I mean, again, you got to look at who you do business with. I don't know if every broker has access to every lender. But to me, the model lines are always a good bet with a fixed rate because their penalties are so much more flexible. And I tell borrowers all the time, especially first-time buyers, I've been in this business now for 20 years, and I can tell you, Right now, all you care about is rate, but in a year and a half, if rates drop, suddenly you're going to be flipping open your mortgage commitment to read that penalty clause, and you're really going to care then, and you can choose whatever you want, and I'm going to give you different options, but in reality, if you want my advice, my advice is place a high value on the fixed rate mortgage penalties, because that really does inhibit your flexibility if they're onerous and rates drop, and we don't know when that'll happen. We expect that'll happen because rates have peaked, but we don't know the timing of when that'll be, so In answer to your question, yeah, I mean, I think on the bank side, 
TD is the most aggressive. We love TD. We do lots of business with them. Client may pay a larger penalty than some other options if they break in three-year term, right? TD's penalties are like all the big six banks. They're right. rapacious and basically the way I put it to rapacious. Board, I don't even know what that means. Like this is I, I look. This is why I say like, my IQ goes up. I go to like 110 IQ when I talk to you. So what, what does rapacious mean? <laughs> rapacious. Um, uh, it's a ripoff. Rapacious. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. It, it means they're really ripping you off. And long story short, with the way the major banks calculate their penalties, more often than not, there's almost no level rates can drop to where it makes any sense to eat their penalty on fixed rate mortgages. So. Uh, effectively, right. what I tell borrowers who are getting a fixed rate mortgage with me through a major bank is just picture an iron door slamming shut behind you that won't open again until you're up for renewal. And, you know, people sometimes will take, you know, if TD's being really aggressive on rate, people like the rate and they take it, but they do it fully apprised by me of what the penalties are. And, and you know, you come to a fork in the road, you give people open disclosures about what the choices so do you, so, okay, just, just as a side note, again, back to our audience, do you actually do a rough estimation for them of what they would expect on a penalty or do you just say that it's rapacious? You say like, so if I got a $500,000 and I'm deciding, hey, I'm going to go with the TD versus a first NAT and you say to me, no problem, customer, just be aware it's an iron door, that's script. But do you actually give me any kind of math on that or how does that usually work? It's tough, Scott, or because estimates. the penalty is a function of where rates are at the time you break the mortgage. And we don't know how much time will be left on the mortgage and what the rates will be that they're using for comparison. But I have a blog post that I wrote that goes into a lot of detail and comes up with a base case scenario based on a $300,000 mortgage. Every broker should write their own blog post about fixed rate mortgage penalties. Guys, <clears throat> when you're competing with the banks, don't compete on rate, compete on contract terms and conditions. The banks will always try to undercut you on rate, but once you explain to borrowers that the terms and conditions in that contract are so onerous and the penalties can be five or six times higher, the conversation is no longer about rate. It's about contracts. And that branch person you're competing with might be able to get five basis points more off the rate, but they're not going to change the standard terms and conditions in that contract. Hit them where they can't hit back. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you got to pick your battles on that. That's actually really good advice. And yeah, maybe I'll get you to send that blog post to Nikki and we'll put it in the show notes of this. So if anybody wants to go check out what you wrote about it, because that's a really good idea. Okay, so what else do you, okay, we've got, you know, inflation still high. We got, you know, a temporary dip that we saw in rates. Where are you looking at next? What's your sort of expectations over, do you think the Bank Canada is going to raise rates on the next announcement as a guy sitting on some variable mortgages? I hope the answer is no, but what do you actually think is going to happen? I don't think the bank's raising. They said they're pausing and they said it would take an accumulation of evidence before they moved off the sidelines. I don't think there's been enough evidence. And quite frankly, even though what's happening in the US isn't directly impacting confidence in Canadian banks, I think right now they're happy to sit tight. And remember, it takes up to two years for the rate hikes to exert their full impact. And it's only been a year since the first hike. So the next six months are going to tell them a lot about what the rate hikes they've already enacted about the impact that they'll have, and they will have an increased impact. I think we'll see rate cuts in 2024. I think at this point, best guess is it'll be in the second half of 2024. I think it's going to be steady as she goes for a while for the Bank of Canada. And one thing I'd throw out there, Scott, I always try to find little angles that maybe the market isn't talking about. And I think I found one. I may be wrong, but I think I found one. For a long time, I was trying to figure out why do the data keep coming in so strong? Is it just that the rate hikes haven't had time to exert any impact yet? But it's happening in Canada and the US. 
it really baffled me and it baffles a lot of other people. And when I look around at what's different this time, why aren't rate hikes having the same impact that they typically have? Because usually by now there'd be more slowing evident yeah. in the economic data. Remember that during COVID, people weren't spending money and the government was paying out really generous amounts in COVID relief. When you look at a chart of how much cash is sitting on household balance sheets right now, it's an exorbitant amount. It's way above the long-term average. I put a chart in my post from two weeks ago, and it's really quite surprising how much excess cash is still sitting on household balance sheets. And when you say to yourself, why aren't higher rates impacting the economy? Why are borrowers willing to pay higher prices at the grocery store? And when contractors are charging more and everything costs more, why isn't that slowing demand? Usually when prices go up, demand slows, but that isn't happening in this case. Well, there's all this cash sitting on household balance sheets. And if people you know, want to buy something and the price is higher and they've got the cash to pay, they'll, for just, they'll just buy it anyway. They'll just pay, okay. Right. So people are feeling a bit more flush with cash. So then these higher rates are not slowing down the economy as like it should be. Right. So when you look at the chart, it goes way up and it's just coming down now. We're not close to normal again, but the arrow has turned and the chart is just starting to come back down. I got it courtesy of Ben Rabidou, by the way, who's amazing at um, yeah. North Coast Advisors. He has his um, Edge Analytics website, which is great. He did the chart for me, which was great. And when you look at that chart, what that says is, we're not back to normal yet. And to me, when you say, when are these rate hikes going to kick in? When is the economy and the data going to start acting like we would expect with all the bank can has done and with the slowing that should be there but isn't there? To me, it'll be when most of that excess cash on household balance sheets is depleted. And we're about a quarter of the way through that happening, but there's still room to run. Well, it'll be interesting to see. So this is kind of like a little, not a prediction, but like something you're monitoring. And so when we get you back on in three months or whatever, where is that balance at on the cash, household cash? Is it actually working? Like, so see if there's a correlation yeah. there, I guess, right? That's what we'll see. The closer um, we get to that line, the long-term average of household cash on balance sheets, the more the economy, I think, will start acting like we expect and the less we expect it, right, it right. will be as we are now. So again, not reading that a lot of places. And again, there's lots of smart people out there. So maybe I'm missing something. But when I look for a simple explanation of why we're getting these upside surprises on all the economic data. Yeah, um, people are still spending. They're still going on vacation. If they didn't have the money, they wouldn't do it. So right. obviously, right? The behavior is a reflection of the money. There was one thing I was going to ask you about. If anybody has any questions, drop them into Facebook. We'll answer them for you. Any other sort of last final thoughts on this? Anything to do with interest rates? I love these conversations with you, by the way. And people listening, you actually gave away some pure gold in there. You were actually giving scripting for how you talk to your client, which is, you know, the whole iron door thing. And so I would encourage you guys to go back, have a listen again. Think about how you're communicating to your clients about these different rates, you know, variables versus fixed. And then make sure that you upgrade it because the market's changed. You need to be up on what's happening in the market and be able to communicate it. So thank you for that. But is there any last kind of words or final words you have for anybody listening? Well, I would only say if most of the listeners are mortgage brokers or mortgage agents, I would just encourage everybody when people ask you, because we all get the question about what rate should I take or where are rates headed? Beware of overconfidence. People don't expect you to have a crystal ball and know what the future holds. I think everybody should start out by saying something to the effect of my opinion in two bucks will get you a hot cup of coffee. People want to know what's going on. Our job is to explain to people what's happening. It's not to predict the future. The value that we add is we do what we did on this talk today. We clarify what's happening in the markets and we give people answers about what we know. You can offer a view about the future, but you don't want to sound overconfident. To me, 
you're putting yourself at risk when you do that. And ultimately, I think people can see through that. They know you can't predict the future. Look, there are stockbrokers out there who make a good living recommending stocks, and nobody expects them to know what the price of the stock's going to do. If they did, they wouldn't be stockbrokers anymore. They'd be sipping Mai Tais on the private island in the South Pacific. And they'd be hedge fund managers with, you know, with, uh, who knows? Right. Yeah, well, those hedge fund managers don't do better than the most of us when you take the fees out of the returns that you get. But no, I think the key is, guys, be modest in your view, know your stuff, do your research, be able to talk about what's happening in an intelligent way, offer a view towards the future, but do it with humility and make sure people know that, you know, there are no promises. And then I think that'll put everyone in good stead. Right. And you probably heard this quote before because you're well read, but there was the bond market is scares everybody. Like, And so there's this guy, James Carvile, who said, you heard this quote from James Carvalho about the bond market. So he says, uh, I used to think that reincarnation, I wanted to come back as the president or the Pope or as a 400 baseball hitter. But now I would like to come back as the bond market. You can intimidate everybody. And I'm like, that's a great quote because it's like the bond market that we ignore most of the time can cause banks to collapse. The bond market can cause like all sorts of that we just were not even paying attention to that. It seems kind of a boring thing, but it actually is ripples in that affect everything. So I thought that was an interesting quotes. Thanks, buddy. I really appreciate your time. This was a fantastic and we'll be chatting again soon. Thanks, Scott. All right. Hopefully you got some ideas from that conversation with Dave. I love when he started getting into, I was acting like the client. He's explaining to me how he words it. There is pure gold in there. I'd recommend that you go and clip that and embed that or use versions of that in your own scripts. In this next segment, I talked to Tom Hall about how to destroy distractions. Hey, Tom, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. So what's the topic we're going to jump into today? Yes, this is something I've been given a lot of thought about recently. How do I do it for myself? And it's been something I've been sharing with a couple of clients and they seem to have taken to it. And so, you know, I thought we could talk about it here. And it's just really the topic of distractions. And we live in a world full of them these days. And so how do you get rid of them, minimize them while still remaining productive in your business? Right. We'll call this how to destroy distractions because I definitely suffer from this. And before we turn the recorder, you gave me an idea that I was like, oh, dang. <laughs> I'm going to do that. So we'll jump into okay. some of those. So what are some of the ways that you see that brokers can help destroy distractions? Destroy distractions. So the first destroyer, I say, is the first step. And it's just about being intentional. And it sounds a little bit wishy-washy, if you will, but it does seem to be pretty powerful. Because a lot of people we see, they kind of just walk into the day, they open up their laptop, they see that first email, and they're down one rabbit hole or the other. And so, you know, the first one is to be intentional, right? So set your daily list. I have a notepad, yes, the guy with the CRM still uses a notepad in some senses. I use CRM tasks for other things. So whatever system it is for you, you know, get it into a place that's organized. And so when you walk into each day, you're dictating your day, not your day dictating you, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. it's not driving you. That's a really good idea, actually. So, okay. So basically, step one would be use to-do lists. And so for you, how, do you, how do you currently... Yeah do to-do lists? I mean, you're running a software company for mortgage brokers. Mm -hmm. So what specifically are the tactics that you find useful? And I mean, you know, yeah, we can yeah, extrapolate that into brokers as well. Yeah. Well, I think it works for both, right? So what I do and what I advise a lot of our clients to do is, you know, the CRM is very good. It has tasks. You can do that sort of thing, but I feel that that's best for very tactical things. So, Hey, call Tom or Hey, you know, I'd send this gift or something like that. So those things where it's self-contained, I can see it, I can do it, and I can check it off. That's exactly what you should be using those tasks for. And you can, you know, start automating those and getting those on a cycle. So it just becomes automatic. And then what I say, there's kind of two categories of tasks. That's 
the ones in the CRM and then I use my notebook for, and we see other people doing is kind of the higher level things, right? So it's like, okay, yes, I have to send the gift. Like but what's hey, some, okay, give me level, something, sorry to put you on this. What's yeah. something that you'd put on your notebook that would be a task that wouldn't fit into your CRM? Because I think this is a good distinction. Yeah. So this one here I have is an upgrade to the Velocity API, right? So we have an API, we have a connection. Yeah, where do you put that yeah. in your CRM? Like it doesn't fit anywhere, but it's, is it it, it's an important thing to do. Exactly. So it doesn't fit in the CRM and that's kind of it, right? So I say, okay, instead of getting it in there and then it's this task sitting there forever and then I stop trusting my tasks, I put it at a different level. I put it in my notebook and I think about those things differently. So not all tasks are created equally. So again, those more tactical ones, those belong really well in the CRM, but maybe the higher level things that belong somewhere else, somewhere that you're going to be able to reference it, but not get frustrated that it's not getting done right away. What I think is that like the CRM is good for lead and file related tasks. So, hey, yeah, check exactly. Bob, you know, yep. hey, check on the appraisal, whatever, but it's not the same as some of the other things. So if you're a mortgage broker, hey, I, I want to record a reel for Instagram. Well, exactly. where's that going to go? You can't put yep. it in your CRM, right? Like I want to yep. do a daily post on Instagram or something. Well, that is going to be more those other types of activities that need to get That's done. That second layer, right? Or yeah. team meeting. I got to meet with my team yeah. and do a pipeline review. That's another important activity that should probably be in a regular rhythm. Let's do a pipeline review, but you're not going to create a task under one customer's name for that. So, you okay, that yep. makes sense. So you're thinking yep. about your to-do list. There's actually at least two to-do lists and probably a third that you could fit in there would be personal stuff. So I have a separate app on my phone yeah. that I use for personal stuff because if I put my personal stuff in my work stuff, then the list gets really long. And I <laughs> tend to like, Whereas when the weekend comes, I can pull up my personal list and go, okay, what things that like I wanted to get my lift desk yep. working again. So yep. I put on my to-do list. And so that was my personal yep. one because it, it wasn't something I was going to do during my work hours. So Yeah. And, and, um, and going back to dictating your day versus the other way around, you can say, well, I'm going to chunk off this time for work stuff and I have a list to do that. And then I know at my lunch hour, I'm going to set aside two hours and go through my personal stuff. Right. So right. by having these layers, it actually helps. You take uh, a two hour lunch. I mean, I'm not, I'm oh not yeah, you don't. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> no. You kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> but I like 15 minutes, man. I'm like barely enough time to eat. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, if you can take a two hour lunch and you're listening, good on you. You know, God yeah. bless you. I can't at the moment. Um, okay. So that's the first way to destroy distractions is yeah. to do list and think of even multiple to do lists and be strategic about what you put. The layers. What would be the second yep. thing? you have to destroy this. It's the biggest, one of the biggest distractions. I think the third one is also huge is, but this one we're going to talk about is your email inbox. I mean, how many, I can count maybe five times in a day. I go into my inbox. I want to write a nice message and maybe hit one of those things on my to-do list. And then I see three emails in all caps with exclamation marks and anything that I was excited about or I had planned, it's just gone. Right. So mm -hmm how do you bust that email distraction? And so, you know, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First of all, there's some like extensions you can set up where it actually hides all your incoming messages, right? So if you want to send yeah. something out, just hide those incoming, you're not going to get distracted and stay focused, but bringing a bit back to the CRM too, saying, okay, well, you know, sending a CRM and managing your day-to-day, -day, how can you actually link those up? How can you make that the same action that says, hey, once I hit this stage of my process, what can I automate? What can I actually just have the email sending? So A, it of course saves me that time, but also saves me from that distraction of hitting my email inbox and going down that rabbit hole. Right. That's good. So I think like a couple of thoughts on this one, you know, get back to the different types of activities. There's file related tasks, lead related tasks. Mm -hmm. If you have automated emails, so like Blue Mortgage, you can have them set up where they then will send those out. So that's emails you don't even have to create, but that need to get done. So that use automations. And then the other thing I would say that would be probably a good practice is actually to send your emails from, like in your case, you can send emails right from 
Blue Mortgage, correct? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like sending emails through Blue, then if it's client-related, it would then be like, hey, I'm working client-related stuff, send emails. And then totally. it would, you know, yep. it's basically, it's creating a container for that activity. One of the things mm -hmm. we did recently with the brokerage is we created what I call one inbox. And I got this from okay. Denise. And we have one email for like eight of us. And it's ask at bricksmortgage.com. And you send that email in and our admin all day long is putting those into folders for people based on who needs to respond. Because before people would be like, hey, Scott, they'd ask me a question. I'm like, oh, shoot, I got to send that over to this person. Now there's no forwarding. There's no uh, like, yeah, because right. the bright person's getting the message. And so I know some brokers who run that way. Denise Laformboise basically has an inbox that everybody shares. Mark Good does this. And somebody was on vacation, doesn't matter. They're on vacation. No, oh, shoot. Yeah. It's annoying when you get the out of office alert. And then now I got to, like you said, now you got to yeah. send the email again to somebody else. Like all that I, stuff you eliminate, right? So anyway. Yeah, totally. And, and to the point of distraction. Yeah. So yeah, if you share it and your assistant can come in and, okay, I'm going to deal with all this crap. And then, hey, Tom or whoever, you need to focus on these three. Now you're not distracted. You can, you know, hit those high priority things too. So yeah, shared inbox had a lot of those benefits as well to destroy that distraction. Okay. To-do lists, email, think about strategy on email. And there is another tool. So we just share one inbox, but one other tool that I have heard people use is called Front App. Have you heard of this? Mm. So no. Front App is a Gmail tool that basically allows, let's say, so if there's a team of you, all the emails would come into Front. Yeah. And then again, you can kind of sort and sift. We just said, well, we don't want to pay for the Front App. We just <laughs> use one inbox, but yeah. it's a bit more robust. And so it's going to be another way for yeah. you to like get everybody on the same page. Yeah. Blue has something similar-ish to that. It's called Sales Inbox. I've honestly not a pro in it, but I do know some users are using it in that sense. And yeah, it's been successful. It's been good. So right. yeah, something like that okay. for sure. To-do to list, email yep. management, that's two mm -hmm. ways to destroy distractions. What would be the last one? And then the last one, I think this is the biggest distraction of them all is your phone, right? And just a quick anecdote here. I got a one-year-old niece who's great, but she can't speak. She doesn't really know what's going on around her. Or maybe she does. I don't know, but uh, she can't speak it. But when yeah. she when she picks up a phone, she just lights up, right? And she just right. goes like, it's just, she is just sucked right in. You take it away. You know, she can get upset about it even too. So what is that doing to the human mind on a subconscious level, right? And if that's happened to a one-year-old, what's that doing to you, right? These we machines are cry. built. We just get, we we just get anxiety. Yeah, yes, but we have the same exactly. issues. We have exactly the same. So that was an eye-opener to me. And so, you know, as part of this theme, you know, for me now, I'm do not disturb. I've turned off all notifications, all that sort of stuff. I even have a feature now where if someone 800 calls me and I have never called it before, straight to voicemail, right? I'm not even going to bother my time. And so it's helped a lot. You know, when I recommend this to brokers and that, it's um, something that a lot of people can pick up right away, which is great. But other people say, well, I spend my whole business on here, right? How am I supposed to get leads or how am I supposed to, you know, do this or that or the other thing? And so what it's forced a lot of people to say, okay, how do I take all these things that I was doing on my phone and get it into a centralized spot? You know, first of all, for an assistant to come in, but also for me to, you know, get that focus and minimize those types of distractions. Right. Yeah. So turn off notifications would obviously be one thing that would be a smart, you know, one of the things that I've started doing is I'm trying to use Instagram. So I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to learn okay. the Instagram and I'm not very good at it, but so put it on my phone and then man, does that thing suck you in? Like it knows oh, exactly yeah. the kind of videos. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. It is like crack <laughs> cocaine. I'm like, and then I'm looking at the week. I did a sort of an assessment of the past week. And I was like, where did my time, like what the heck happened to, 
you know, literally, and people will brag about the fact that they don't watch TV. Like I heard lots of people, and I've been this person. I don't watch TV. But then if you look at the time you spend on your phone watching, you know, 30 <laughs> second videos, it's worse than watching TV. And it's, it's three not hours even, a day. It's yeah, not even a, a continuous yeah. story with an arc or anything. It's just, it's like channel it just hits up dopamine, right? Just, yeah. <laughs> right. So now it's what like I do that, is yeah. I delete it. I literally delete it. And when I want to post something that I need to use my phone for, I install it, post it and delete it. And it's friction but it's intentional no friction because yeah. I, I can't even trust myself. Like, I'm like, I'll just look for a second. Next 30 minutes no. gone. I'm like, what the heck? You can have the Fight best video in the world, like, but yeah, it yeah. takes one video or one week moment and there goes two hours, right? So yeah, it, yeah it's introducing that friction. Absolutely. Yeah. So <laughs> you should put friction in places, things that you don't actually want to be doing all the time. I took Facebook off my phone for the same reason. I put it on there again, thinking, oh, I, can ha- I cannot, ha- I literally cannot handle the distraction of Facebook. And so I will log into Facebook once, twice a day. And actually there's way less on your phone. It will make up notifications for you. I mean, because there's lots of stuff going on. So it's just like, (laughs) we're going to make up notifications just to keep you in here so we can feed you ads. Um, And uh, it's built for it. Yeah. It's a machine built to suck you in, right? Yeah. You can pay $12 a month to get a verified Facebook account. Did you see this? I didn't hear that one. No, No. Yeah. So, and I don't think that eliminates ads. I think all that does is just mean I'm like, do I get a checkbox at least or a check mark? Like, what do I, get? I, I I swear to God, I think I saw that recently. And I was like, how does this make, like I could see paying for Facebook. If you eliminate my ads, I'd probably yeah, yeah. pay for it. But yeah. if you're not going to eliminate my ads and you're going to still charge me, I'm like, what am I getting for this? What's the point? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. crazy. Okay. So yeah. uh, any last thoughts on destroying distractions? No, I mean, just to summarize, you know, be intentional about your day, get those to-do lists in place at the right level. You know, big part of that too is kind of matching that, level of to-do list with, you know, how you treat things like your emails, probably the biggest distraction, but then also even your phone too. And so with both of those, you know, there's different tools you can get in place to stop notifications or see things you don't want to see. So leverage those as much as you can. And, you know, if you are eliminating these types of things, just make sure that you have somewhere else that you can check it. So of course your business can continue to function without, you know, that loss of productivity that you would get by interacting with these distracting things. Right. I love that. And so if you guys are listening to this, Tom is one of the founders at Blue Mortgage, BLU Mortgage, and it's a CRM specifically for brokers, well-designed, and it'll help you some of these things, lead tasks, file-related tasks, email you know, integration where you can track email chains to the client, all that stuff. So I would encourage you guys to check that out if you want to help destroy distractions and you can check out Tom's company. Thanks again, Tom, for coming chat with me. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode. I hope you got some ideas for your mortgage business. Thanks again to Dave and Tom for coming to chat with me. If you guys are listening to this, I recommend you go check out ilovemortgagebrokering.com. We have a keyword search tool that lets you search all the past episodes. You can jump to any moment in any episode and take you right there. And if you go on full screen mode, you can even see it's transcribed. So you can actually copy scripting and language. It's very powerful. Check it out at ilovemortgagebrokering.com. And thanks again for listening to this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.